Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Just a reminder, we and our guests use some adult language that may not be suitable for all ears. And as a heads up, we do mention depression, suicidal thoughts, and the death of Black people in this episode. Our guest D, like many other servers, felt comfortable last year in calling out certain businesses that had frequently taken advantage of people, but had a lot of clout in the food and beverage industry. You'll hear her make reference to this throughout the episode. Along those same lines, Adesala created a public list that people can anonymously submit to, named Be Wary, that allows service industry workers to report unfair treatment, missed wages, and improper handling of the pandemic. We'll post a link in the show notes. Dee and Day also talk about the barrage of Venmo, Cash App, and PayPal payments they received last year as a wave of guilt crashed over this country. People they'd met once, knew 10 years ago, or friends of friends were sending them monetary payments, pretty much people's personal interpretation of reparations. And they weren't alone. We've got a link to a Reply All episode that also discusses this phenomenon as it took place across the globe. All right, enough pep talk. Let's get into the episode. Hey, everybody. I am Carolyn. And I am Adesola. And this is Creatives on Deck, an interview-style podcast where we talk to creatives who often find themselves working in two worlds, in their artistic endeavors that make them thrive, and the service jobs that not only fund their livelihoods, but teach them about people. This week, our guest is Dee Stubblefield. She is a service professional, arts and literature advocate, and educator living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Throughout her extensive career, she's advocated for the working class, especially those navigating the service industry in its many forms. She's created and structured community and corporate educational programming, and is currently utilizing her 12-year career to create sustainable change in the wine industry. So welcome, Dee. Hello. 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 <laughs> Here she is. I know you just came from work. How How are you? How's everything going at Sally? Everything's going great. I mean, it's, it's weird. <laughs> like, it's so weird. I was just telling somebody today how if you look at my life like one year ago, because we were like coming up on like the one year mark for, you know, COVID, Miss Rona. And (laughs) a year ago, I would have never if somebody would have been like, you're going to open a restaurant in a pandemic. I would have been like, (laughs) you are a fucking liar. And I I would have never, ever expected it. But it's going surprisingly well. I think that, you know, um, we're all really lucky to be able to kind of function safely in the way that we do. Um, and so it's great. And it's also just a lot of, a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's like, like no other service industry job I've had. It's just a lot of moving parts and a lot of things to think about. And I really thrive with puzzles and, having a million things to do. So it's going well. I ran all the way home to do this. I was like, I have to get out of here. I have an obligation. So <laughs> peace. <laughs> yeah, I was like, see you guys later. <laughs> oh, God. Well, so is this your first time opening a, like a business, right? Or, you know, being the part of that opening crew? Yeah, this is the first time that I've been involved with starting from scratch. And I think like, you know, I have always wanted to own my own business and 
I'm lucky that the universe puts me in situations where I can like learn on really somebody else's dime. Um, And this was like one of the biggest lessons just because it was from concept to purchasing to, you know, I'm building like an HR program and how am I hiring people and who am I hiring? And like, those are decisions I've never actually been able to be a part of, but they're things that I'm like really passionate about. And especially like, front of house, interpersonal, kind of like how do we create a safe environment for people like emotionally and creatively? And then also how do we pay people for the shit that they do? Because it's like notorious. You can have all these like really flowery kind of thoughts about what you would want a restaurant to look like or the food to taste like. But how are we attracting the right kind of people to work there? And that's been like a really fun thing, but it's also been a really sobering reality that restaurants function in this really fucked up way and it's worked for the business, but it doesn't work for people. And I think the pandemic really showed that, like how vulnerable we all are. So it's been kind of cool. It's also just been really stressful. Like I'm responsible for people's livelihood now, you know? And that's like a lot of pressure. That's a very scary thing to realize in your responsibility as a decision maker. You have to make decisions for the business, but also for the people who now depend on you and what you choose to do. You know, I never want to lose the memory of what it has been like working for people. Like, I never want to lose that memory of what it has felt like being, you know, passed over for things or not being paid correctly or not being, you know, appreciated. I never want to lose that feeling because that really informs how I treat other people in Sally, you know? (sighs) I think about how a lot of us Black people, especially if we had the power to be like HR, what would we do to change a lot of the things, you know? For me, especially having work for like humongous corporations where they just don't give a shit. It feels empowering, you know, to be in that position to actually make long lasting changes instead of like kind of plugging a hole and not really understanding the full scope of what's happening. It's also like, I I mean, I, I, I think I said it to the owners of Sally when they first like asked me to do this. I was like, I just want a chance to prove that the status quo is actually wrong. You know, and it's like very rare that black people, but especially like black women or black queer people or trans people, they're ever given that opportunity to just like prove that the way that people function in restaurants is actually incorrect. You know, it's just all theory right Mm -hmm. now. And this is like we're putting theory to actual action. And that's kind of cool. But it's also like, what if it doesn't work? Then it's I I at least have the chance to be like, okay, at least I tried. And I think that I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to try and not, you know, I'm not spending like a millions of dollars to open my own business. One day I will, but it's like nice to just be able to be like, no, I actually think if you, you know, cross train a dishwasher to also know about wine, that actually benefits your company. If you tell a server that they can actually learn about wine or food or anything, that kind of benefits your business. The the lack of like hierarchy between front and back of house, that actually benefits your business in the long term. And so I have a lot of freedom in that. And that's kind of cool. 
So what is Sally and how did you get involved with them? Um, Sally is a pizza, natural wine, all sorts of other stuff place. Um, so I was a pandemic chillin', you know, I was, <laughs> it's really funny how all this happened around in June, right? So the murders of black people and I was just like at a place where I felt like I had been able to sit down long enough to actually unpack all of the harm that was done to me in my career. And so, you know, on the internet, when you see all these people talking about like Black Lives Matter and all this other stuff. So I just started calling out a lot of the shit that had happened to me in my own career. And in the midst of that, some crazy person decided to be like, we should get D to like run our wine program. It's like really crazy. But the way that I got involved with Sally was that a really great friend of mine who also works at Sally, Anna, we had studied wine together and she was like, hey, I think I'm going to go back to making pizza. And this was a thing that she had stopped doing because of harm in the industry and whatnot. And so I was like really intrigued. So I was like, well, if this is getting you to go back to something that you decided to stop doing, like that's fucking crazy. And so Anna told me about it. And then Rob, who is the chef at Sally, his wife I worked with at Bloomsday, she was like, yeah, I put your name up for it. And I met with them in June. And I remember meeting with them and being like, do these people know that I am like calling all sorts of shit out on the internet right now. Like I would like that. I didn't think that that would make me horrible, but I guess it did. And so that's how I got involved. And the reason I got involved with Sally is strictly because these two women that I deeply trusted and who I, you know, confided in about a lot of, you know, the things that I felt about being a black woman in the industry were just like, Hey, I really think that you could do this. And, you know, there was a part of me that was like very scared. Like I've never run a wine program before. I was just like really intently studying and it was like kind of for my own well-being. And then I, the pandemic has just like literally made me say fuck it to a lot of stuff to just be like, fuck it. I don't know what I'm doing, but guess what? I know I could work my ass off. I know nobody can work harder than me. And so I got involved. And so on top of working at Sally, I also like, am studying wine, but doing that work, it was an opportunity to just like prove several motherfuckers wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it also seems like they very much value you because you're able to give a lot of input beyond being in charge of the wine program there. You know, like you're involved in hiring and like these part, like they're listening to you and your experience in this industry. I mean, they're crazy for listening to me. Sure, yeah, no, it's, 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 yeah, I, I do feel like there is a value that I give that no one can be me, if that makes sense. And that's like been a guiding force, especially the last year of my life, where it's just like a lot of people can do a lot of things and, and, but nobody can do it like me. And so it's, it's just a different perspective. But yeah, it's been a wild and crazy ride. It's a fun job. It's, it's a lot of learning. It's a lot of, learning interpersonal skills with how to work with people that have different perspectives than you, have different like life kind of uh, events that have happened to them. Like I, 
jokingly say this, but it's true. You know, Rob, Anna, and I all came out of retirement to do this, and there's a reason. So that's kind of cool. What was your first service job and when was it? So my first service job was, um, it was actually in coffee. Like most of my career come is in coffee. And I did this pivot to wine because I got really burned out by that industry. Um, and so my first job was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. And it was working for this guy, Ken, who's an amazing man. But I was working for a company called Crazy Mocha. And <laughs> even just like, I'm, but like crazy mocha, but here's the thing, the, the, I'll never forget this for the rest of my life, but the, um, logo was crazy mocha, but in the curls font. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> it's still like the best fucking thing I've ever, it's so bad. It's good. Like, like ironically, like ironically, you know, there's a, a friend of mine in Pittsburgh has a record store, record shop. And he had a shirt that said punk, but in like comic sans. And I thought that was the funniest thing ever. It was just like, it's so bad. It's good. So <laughs> I, I worked for crazy mocha for a long time and I, basically just needed a job. Like, you know, I had just moved back to Pittsburgh from like college. I just needed a job. And it was a great job because I could be creative. Like coffee. So it was so wonderful to me because I could go to work for eight hours, get out at two and then just go be creative or just go do something else, you know, and not think about it and leave it at work and whatever. But that job also taught me how to fucking hustle. Like you were one person at a coffee shop at peak hours, like that teaches you how to hustle. And so I worked there and I worked at a couple shops in Pittsburgh um, and just really hustled and learned everything that I could possibly learn about not just the industry, but the product and just like got really good at it. And then I got a job with this company called Counterculture. Basically, I was running their training facility and doing like customer rep stuff for Pennsylvania, Jersey, and Delaware. And so that's why I moved to Philly. I got this big girl job. And that was a a fucking culture shock. Like moving to Philadelphia is... (laughs) (laughs) Like I love it now, but I tell everybody I hated Philly for like the first year I lived here. I was just like... I did. I was like, why are people so intense? Like... (laughs) (laughs) Why is it so dirty? Like this, it's just not like, it's just so out of control. I was just like, (laughs) but it's, you know, moving from Pittsburgh, which is kind of like a Midwest environment to a place like Philadelphia, where it's right in your face and like excellence is like expected, but it's also, you can't suck here. You can't suck. Like not even like a little bit. And so, yeah, I moved here for that job and I had that job for about two years. And that job was really transformative career wise. The trajectory of my career just kind of like shot up. But the personal toll that it took, that was the lesson I learned. It's cool to have a job that everybody wants at one point in time. But if that job doesn't really leave space for you to take care of your heart or your mind or your body, like, what is it worth? Money isn't everything, you know? And so when I left that job, I felt a little lost professionally. I got, felt like I got beat up a little bit. And 
I like moved to New York for a while and did a job there. And then I completely crashed. Like I completely like mentally and emotionally crashed. And I remember a friend asking me, where is the last place that you felt like even slightly whole? And it was Philly. And so I was like, I'm just going to move back to Philly. I'm going to go back to my roots. I'm going to go get a job in a coffee shop. (laughs) I'm going to like go work in a restaurant. I'm going to put my heart back together, really. And so I moved back here. And on the first day I was moved back here, I happened to go to Elixir in Center City. And I saw a friend of mine, Ben, and he was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just back in Philly. And he was like, do you want a job? And I was like, fuck yeah, I want a job. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got a job at Elixir and then another pal. I remember when I saw you. (laughs) Cause like everyone was like, he's gone. Where did he go? And I remember walking into Elixir because, you know, I don't live anywhere near Elixir. I was like, okay, I'm going to get a coffee. And I walk in, I'm like, Dee! <laughs> and it was just like, and I was like texting everyone. I was like, he's back! <laughs> well, that's, a, it's funny that you said that because I was at the Tasty and this was in the same day that Ben was like, do you want a job? And I went to the Tasty with my friend Jeremy who was in town and my uh, a girl that I know from from Hungry Pigeon, Caitlin, she saw me and she was like, oh, my God, you moved back here. I'm going to tell her friend, Steph, because Steph had happened to be doing stuff with Bloomsday. And so I remember being like, what the fuck? Did I just get two jobs in a day? That's crazy. <laughs> that. That's crazy. <laughs> and so I started working at Elixir and at Bloomsday. And those were two places that I will forever credit with allowing me the space to put my heart back together. I set boundaries. They honored them. I had opportunities that came my way. They offered me, you know, ways to advance and ways to learn. And especially Bloomsday with wine, where it was like, oh, I'm interested in this thing And I want to learn more. And they were always really open to like teaching me or mentoring me. Even still, those guys are people that I really treasure their opinions and their advice. And they're still people that I go to. Welcoming and open, especially even like seeing what Sarah's been able to do there too with a tall poppy has been like really cool. It's not a lot of times you get to see businesses who have that built into they're every day. They're like their ethos of being like, yo, we see you're doing something really cool and we want to support you. You don't see that kind of stuff happening a lot, especially in Philly where it's just so like white male driven chefs, like fusion, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, I, mean, I think <laughs> I mean, it also true. has something to do with the fact that like, you know, Zach and Kelsey come from a coffee shop environment. And like, that's the idea with like coffee shops. It's like, you get those regular customers, you get those regular baristas, you get those regular, those regular occurrences. So you're always constantly trying to like, you know, for all of coffee's faults and flaws, like the one thing, I love the coffee shop environment so much because it's so rooted in community, right? And so them bringing that kind of energy to restaurants is actually kind of cool where it's like, to me, they're like coffee people, you know? And yeah. And I think it's also a way they're really good at being like, you're good at this thing. I want to support you as best that I can. And that is rare. It sucks. It fucking sucks that that's rare. (laughs) 
But it's also one of those things where I really needed to experience that because I was so disillusioned by the whole industry, like service wise. And I just needed to see that that was possible. And I think if I hadn't worked at Elixir and if I hadn't worked at Bloomsday, you know, logistically, I probably wouldn't be in this job, but also emotionally, I just wouldn't have been able to take on other opportunities because there's not a lot of examples that healthy of healthy restaurant environments. There's just not. I think it's hard for a lot of people to think of jobs we've had where we were surrounded by a positive group of people that didn't negatively affect our physical and mental health. More often, if someone were to lash out at you, your well-being or want to not work with that person wouldn't be the priority of the manager or whoever's in charge. The person who snapped because they hold more power is who matters. You know, our concerns are more often not listened to. Yeah. I mean, I I went into it with that being like the kind of idea in my head, you know, like I went into it. I was like, look, dude, I just want to make coffee and shut up and like, don't ask me to do shit. Don't ask me to be a manager. Don't ask me to fucking even look at a camera. Don't fucking take pictures of me. Leave me the fuck alone. I just want to like make lattes and call it a fucking day. And they let me do that. And that's the thing is like that. What is that builds trust where it's like. You know, I remember they had a photographer taking photos and I was like, I don't want to be in any pictures. And like, you know, one of the owners, Kelsey, was just like, I just want you to know we're going to honor that. And they always honored it. They always did. And they never questioned it. And it's just like, oh, wow, that's surprising. You're not going to violate my boundaries. Great. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm just so used to being violated. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm like, cool. You're not going to like use my picture for like clout because that happens too. being tokenized. If I say I want to learn stuff on the bar, you're going to fucking let me. I got a, you know, a scholarship to study wine. And I remember asking like, hey, could you guys like write me a recommendation? And they did it immediately, like immediately. And I was just like, oh, so you guys are going to like support me? That's crazy. <laughs> like, that's wild. So now I'm in a place where I'm like, oh, you guys better fucking support me or I'm going to like, <laughs> it's like, I already know how that feels. So how dare you? <laughs> like, You are very clear about the boundaries you set up. And I kind of wanted to talk about where you have your lines for sharing and privacy and how those boundaries kind of developed. And in addition to that, you talk about having to constantly use survival skills and how those boundaries play a part in that and that whole combination. Yeah, I mean, as far as boundaries are concerned, you know, it was a live and learn thing. It was just like, okay. And a lot of my coffee jobs, like my job was my whole life, you know, wake up at 5 a.m., start answering emails. Like, how do I get better at it? How do I advance in it? How do I, you know, use it to leverage? Like, I don't know if you guys are into astrology, but a lot of my chart is in Capricorn. So that makes fucking sense. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So like I'm a Gemini, so I'm like a cool, like cool Capricorn. <laughs> but a lot of it was because the boundaries that I had set up, have set up in my life really only came up in the last like couple years because I had spent so much of my time pouring all of my time and energy into not even just work. It's just like, you know, relationships, you know, even community efforts that I was doing. I was like pouring from an empty well when that well was empty you, I had people who were just asking for more because I, they were so used to me giving 
that I just couldn't. And I just like kind of broke where I was like, okay, in order for me to do good work, I need to set up these boundaries so that I can take care of myself. And a lot of it was mental, like mental health. It was a lot of like therapy. It was a lot of doing things that intentionally made me happy. And so those boundaries are just so strong because I had, but it took a really long time for me to develop them. And I hate to say it, but it really took me hitting like rock bottom personally for me to like have those boundaries exist. It took me not being able to get out of bed for weeks at a time. You know, it took me not really wanting to live anymore. It took me having these really scary things happen to me mentally for me to get to a place where I can only give you so much and I get to decide how much that is, but I'm always going to put myself first. I think in when I talk a lot about boundaries, it's like, okay, there's boundaries from my time and my energy, but really what I'm trying to say is like, I have to be number one in my life. Like I have to be number one in my life. Like nobody else can be number one but me, because it was like, I was like third or fourth on the totem pole two years ago. And now it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, even like, you know, you guys asking me to do this podcast, I was just like, all right, I want to do this, but do I have the space? Do I have the time? Do I have the energy? Do I even want to do it? Like, it's like those things instead of, you know, two years ago, it would have been like, well, my, my friend asked me to do this and I have to do it, not caring about myself. And so that's really where the boundaries started, but it was really hard for about a year. I blocked out a lot of like friendships. I blocked out a lot of like relationships. I blo- I stayed to myself. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't. I was alone because I had never had a really good example of like setting boundaries. So I had to kind of drastically create a wall where I, you know, could try those boundaries out. And now I know that like my well-being for myself comes before any and everything like a job. I mean, if this job, you know, makes me feel like I want to die tomorrow. Bye, bitch. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I mean, it's just that's kind of like the vibe. It's just like I have to put on my own life jacket before I can put on anybody else's or help anybody else. And, And I'm just like no good if I'm not taking care of myself. So I think that's so important, but I also feel like when we're constantly being taken advantage of and overused, we're, we get in that mindset of like, that's how we're supposed to be. And it takes a, a little bit to kind of break that cycle of being like, nah, bitch. Like I know for me, me and Carolyn, we talk about this all the time, especially like with my divorce and all the stuff that's happened in the past like few years, learning how to really like take care of yourself and not let uh, other people's like shit, like overwhelm you. And fuck, saying no <laughs> is like the best thing that's fucking ever happened to me in my yeah. whole fucking life. No, saying yeah. no or just being like, you know, for me, it was even acknowledging, is this mine or is this yours? Because a lot of times yeah. like we can't help it. Like we can't, and this is like, you know, we can't help it where sometimes our stuff like, bleeds onto other people. And I think it's like really important for me to be like, is this my insecurity or is this your insecurity? And if I know that it's your insecurity, then it's like, okay, I can be empathetic about it, but it's not mine. And then when I'm, you know, in situations where I'm expected to take on other people's like insecurities, I get really angry about it. Whereas, you know, a couple years ago, I would get really guilty, feel really guilty or just like feel like 
anxiety about it. And now I just get pissed off where it's just like, that's not mine. And it's okay to say, hey, this is mine. This is my stuff and this is your stuff. And then that's, that's, is what it is, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that when we say boundaries, I think a lot of it, sometimes people think it means like, you know, well, you can, you can't do this or you can do this or whatever. But a lot of it starts with us. Like those boundaries mm-hmm. start with us. Like saying no to myself, that's crazy. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> like, and sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I don't say no to myself and then I suffer the consequences. But sometimes I, a lot of times I'm like, no, I can't, I'm not doing that. Or I know I can, I get this email and I know I could shoot off a a response really quickly, but no, I'm not going to do that, you know? And I think a lot of it has to do with like, even professionally, like productivity, like what's that saying? You got to be twice as good to get half as far. Like that was ingrained in me when I was growing up, you know? And so that's where, the lack of boundaries was I have to be twice as good. Especially as black people, that's that's really drilled into our heads, like hardcore. Even, yeah. you know, as as a femme, like it's just like twice as hard to get half as far. Like you're expected. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm not my a hundred percent looks like two hundred percent because of that. And so I was just like, Well, if I kick it down to like eighty, I'm still you're still gonna think that I'm doing you know, a hundred and twenty percent, but I'm gonna feel better about myself. Something I did want to talk about was the whole white guilt after the protest that happened. <laughs> and my favorite thing, I don't, I don't know if this happened to you, it most likely did, was all the little $5, $10, oh my God, the more Freedom Fund? The Freedom Fund? Yes! Yes! yes. Freedom Dollars? <laughs> Yo, I'm telling you right now, I was fucking rich, okay? I was rich. I was shocked because I'm like, I'm not even doing anything. I'm literally just calling out some bullshit. Also, just like, you know, that was a real, really interesting time for me professionally because it really had showed me who was putting their money where their mouth was, you know? Um, Like, I remember having a very heated conversation with the owner of Elixir about his response to it. I was just like, fuck that. That's bullshit, you know? And that helped him. Other coworkers came forward and like guided him and helped him. But then his response to it was completely different. Even like Bloomsday, I remember Bloomsday not like responding immediately. And I was like actually hurt. And so I just, I think it was like a really interesting time for businesses to put their money where their actual mouth is. It's not about, oh, hey, we believe in Black Lives Mattering. It's about what does your front of house look like? Are all the Black people in your organization in the back of the house? Do they all just like, you know, cook or or wash dishes? Where's the representation of like, you know, Black and brown people? Where's the representation of queer people? Do you protect your trans coworkers and do you protect your trans people of color? Like actually, if somebody misgenders them, what do you do? You know what I'm saying? Like there's just so much more that I feel like people could be kind of like doing and a black square and $20 in my Venmo is not it, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That money is so fun. I definitely, I definitely bought like a a cute little linen duvet cover. I bought some expensive (laughs) shoes. I bought like a lot of wine. So thanks guys. But it was just that. I just think that shit is weird. I'm like, what do you do in your real life? You know? I don't really care 
this performative stuff is like so wild because it's like, okay, even the way that people reference June, right, is insane to me now where it's like, oh, in June with the, you know, protests. And it's like, what the hell? We should be doing that. That happens every day. You just heard about it this time, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't know. I remember just being like, being so exhausted and like afraid and you know even the decision to come out about my own experiences was like reliving it and just like and I don't think I would have done that had we not had the space to sit and reckon with ourselves with the pandemic like I would have been too busy working to like really like be like I don't have time for that you know and so I'm hopeful that it opened a lot of people's eyes I can be pretty skeptical when it comes to people understanding racism because there's a lot of misinformation going around like people that still think racism is being mean to black people <laughs> like what <laughs> that's so much what the fuck I no say the n-word i'm not a racist no seriously it's like that's what people think they think like you know yeah. voting for joe biden makes them not racist like but it's mm. it's it, that whole time was like really transformative for me because it just reminded me that you should always tell your truth even if it makes somebody uncomfortable you should just always tell your truth and I think a lot of black people started telling the truth and I think a lot of you know white people were afraid to understand that that was actually what was going on and that it was a surprise for a lot of people I guess it made me comfortable and really leaning back into who I was instead of the masks that I feel like a lot of Black folks wear in order to be able to, that survival of living every day and just being like, I don't give a fuck. You're a fucking idiot. Like, get the fuck out my face. Like, it felt like I got that power back, which is like really fucking nice, you know, instead of having to like tiptoe around some shit or not feel comfortable in saying things anymore. And so I, it's funny because a lot of the places where I used to work, <laughs> they're getting called out, but like, not going to say the name now, but <laughs> we know who it is. <laughs> I mean, the place where we met, D. Right. Yeah, that? totally. Absolutely. Right? So- <laughs> <laughs> that one owner being called out, I'm like, but it was both of them. But it was both of them. Me just like screaming and all the fucking people who work there just being like, the fuck like so this one white person's gonna be let free because they don't really talk as loud as the other one yeah i saw this happen in coffee and i saw this happen in the philadelphia restaurant scene where it's just like everyone already knows Mm. just somebody saying it at the right like i really feel like i said what i said at the right time and in the right space and i did that for a fucking reason because i was like oh you're gonna actually listen to me cool but if it but everybody knew like there's so many people who knew that was happening and did nothing and and it's like you know because we have this like scarcity mindset where if i have this job and nobody else can have it and i'm gonna do whatever i have to do to keep it it doesn't matter who's being harmed. And it's like, but you knew that this was happening. Like in the restaurants, like we all knew that that was happening. We knew that that was like happening. And so it's like, cool, You, we have a reckoning now, right? But it's like, how about we stop it before there's a reckoning? Like that seems to be the smart thing to do is to, to, to halt that attitude before it has to be blown up like this 
wouldn't you think that that would be like smarter? But like, I really resonate with you being like the mask that you have to kind of like wear to just get by. Like that, it's heavy. It's heavier every year that I've been alive. That mask has gotten heavier and heavier, mm-hmm. and this is not a safe world to tell the truth. But I'm going to tell the truth anyway. I'm a big fan of Real Housewives of Atlanta, and I always think about how Cherie was like, "Who gonna check me, boo?" Because I really feel like that. <laughs> like, I, like you can't. Like I'm a bad bitch. You can't kill me. Like what? <laughs> Like, who go check me? Like, that's how I feel after after June. That's how I felt was just like, oh, I'm gonna take this job. Who's gonna check me? Like, you're what what you gonna do? Nothing. So it's just <laughs> telling the truth. You have to tell the truth. Yes. So what do you do for creative outlets with everything you have going on? Uh when we talked about like boundaries and stuff, uh, it was just like Okay, I'm setting boundaries to take care of myself, but, like, how do I do that? So it's been, like, you know, writing and reading and painting and all these other, like, kind of creative outlets that, you know, I've got jobs that let me be creative, but I like to keep that creative side of me really personal because it's, like, the physical manifestation of, like, my heart. And I just, like, like keeping that really, really, really private, especially when it comes to like painting. Like, it's just like, those are things that like, you won't ever see me post something I paint on like Instagram. You won't, you know, I will maybe sell a painting to a friend, but it's just like, has to be like a close friend, you know? Um, It helps me to get out of my own way. I am not a go with the flow person. I think that's stupid. <laughs> and I just God, not, such again, a Capricorn. And again, Capricorn. I'm like, oh, you're just like, oh yeah, let's just see where it goes. No. <laughs> I like told a friend of mine, I was just like, you know, I'm a Gemini son. So I'm like, yeah, I'm down. Who's all going to be there? What time is it? Where is it at? What's the attire? Who's bringing the food? Should I do like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah, down for anything. But I'm also just very in my head. And a lot of times, you know, painting allows me to kind of get out of my head and just get into like how I feel about something or like I never start with a plan. I just kind of like go for it. And so I feel like that's the one, the one part of me that's like a real go with the flow type of thing. And then, I mean, writing, writing also just helps me to get what's in my head out. Like, you know, like it helps me to clear it all out. Like those two kind of creative endeavors are just like really private because they are really things that have helped my like mental health. They've been really helpful on like my mental health journey, you know? Like if I'm feeling anxious, I write. So it's just like, those are, really sacred. And I think that there's a privacy to it because I feel like it's really easy. Again, this is a boundary with me. People want to turn something into currency, right? Where it's just like, oh, D, you paint, let me buy it. And it's just like, I'd never want that to be a thing. I don't want any of my creative endeavors to turn into capitalistic things, right? It's just like, Mm -hmm. I keep them close to my heart because if they were to turn into these capitalistic pursuits, that would just kill the reason why I do them in the first place, you know? So writing and painting, but also just like reading. I I read a lot. I spend most of my time when I'm not, you know, at work, like reading things. And it's for two reasons, for information and then to escape. You know, I used to 
escape through drinking too much. And now I escape more through books. And again, it's taking me out of my own head, putting me in, in another healthier place. So yeah, those are three things that I need in order to be able to do the work that I do in the service industry. Like if I didn't have those things, I would be a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> With that, like some pieces of it, you do want to share with people, like if you read something and you want other people to know about it. And you mentioned how important mutual aid is to you. And I know in another one of the like pre-interview questions, you mentioned the idea of having these social groups where it's more about everyone kind of like on an equal footing and equal understanding. How did that become something that you became really interested in? It became an interest when I realized how hard it was for even me to like move or do anything, right? It really came out of my professional life where it was just like, I don't want anybody to ever feel the way that I have felt before. And so that idea of like mutual aid, we're all in the same playing field. We all kind of do the same things. And and also just like we take care of one another. It's that, you know, idea of community that I got from growing up Black in a predominantly not Black city. You take care of your tribe. You take care of your, whoever your tribe is, you take care of them. You you give to them. You encourage them. You educate them. Like that kind of idea of mutual aid was instilled in me by my parents, like growing up where, you know, it wasn't just my family who was taking care of me. It was just like neighbors and friends and friends of friends and sharing. And and so I've always been more interested in the collective. And I feel like, you know, this world, well, it's because I had to. I had to be interested in the collective because I was like raised by the collective. You know, I just think that things are a lot easier when we all take care of one another in any way that we can. And a lot of times it's been for me education. It's been like, okay, I read this really cool book. I want you to read it. Or, okay, I learned this really cool thing. I want you to learn it. Okay, I have a position at my job. I want you to get it. And so it's just been instilled in me from a really young age. Plus, like I hang out with a lot of freaks. So I just love, (laughs) I love weirdos getting opportunities and yeah, and I I really do believe it's not even just like about like opportunities. It's just about like taking care of one another. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like loyalty is very important to me. But the way the way that I show that I'm loyal to the collective is really by sharing things and sharing information and sharing resources and sharing my time and sharing, you know, my money, my my all of it. It's just by sharing. That's how I that's my form of mutual aid is sharing, right? Some other people could be different, but I get really frustrated because I feel like this world is, well, yeah, it is built on the idea that the individual is paramount when coronavirus is a living example of like, if we just all took care of one another, how quickly would this have been taken care of, right? If we actually gave a shit, like if our government actually gave a shit about us, where would we be if we all just cared about one another? You know, mutual aid has become this really popular thing in the face of like such travesty, you know? Mm -hmm. But I really hope that that shit sticks around. Like I really, really, really hope that, you know, one day we're going to wake up and there's going to be more people who think like this than not. Like, I hope that it's going to be fucking weird to just think about yourself. Yeah, it's been really nice seeing that happen in Philly in such like 
full force. I think that's like part of the reason why I, I do like Philly because even before Corona, it was it was still kind of a thing that was happening. And I feel like it got bolstered as soon as the pandemic came. And it was really nice to be like people to see, what do you need? What do you got? This is not available for these people. I got you all these people coming together to kind of fill spots and needs that people really needed. And like you said, not really like thinking about themselves. It was like the community first, you know? I don't know. I just, it just made me just fall in love with Philly all over again, to be honest. Well, yeah, Philly does it in the most, you know, brutal way possible. They just like, you know, bulldoze you with like (laughs) hair. (laughs) Like, it's like, you know, even just when Sally is a thing that is up and running, there are going to be mutual aid efforts like we want that to be a part of the framework of this restaurant you know even inside the restaurant dishwashers are going to learn about wine porters are going to learn about wine cooks are going to learn about wine it's everybody's going to learn in the way that I can give them information so that they can maybe go and get another job that they or do the same job that I have I don't know but even just like outside of my you know work life it's like taking care of one another is like so much more important to me because there's going to be the times where I need to be taken care of. And, and there have been times and my community has like shown up for me. And there's just the, uh, the way that that feels like is just kind of like, it always brings tears to my eyes. Cause it's just the best feeling ever to know that it's like, somebody else or several people or a group of people have your back. And it's like, I want everyone to have that same feeling. So however I need to do it, if I if I do it through wine, if I do it through being in the streets, if I do it through in my own little way, it's just like, I just don't want to be a part of the problem. And I think it sucks that there's more people who are okay with being a part of the problem than the solution. But I just don't ever want to be a person that is like not riding hard for the people that make a lot of our things happen, like the working class. Like, I'm never not going to be a person that doesn't ride hard for that. Even when I get rich, girl, I'm still going to ride. (laughs) (laughs) Manifesting. Right. When I make a million dollars, I'm going to give you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) And that concludes our interview. You can find D on Instagram at Young X Revolting, on Twitter at D's underscore nuts, and working hard as the front of house manager at the restaurant Sally near the Schuylkill River Park in Philadelphia. You can find Creatives on Deck on any podcast streaming platform and on Instagram at Creatives on Deck. Got a question? Send us an email, creativesondeck at gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>